When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. <clears throat> and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, the and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. The word of the Lord. Buenos dias. Buenos dias. Yes. Before I start, um, when I said a few things, uh, this, been, this month has been amazing, amazing. And I've seen through my own life and uh, how God has manifested his power during this missions month uh, and has been a, a real authentic celebration. Also, I just want to share, uh, just want to mention that uh, before we navigate God's word that, as you probably know, uh, English is not my first language, but it's not going to take you longer. Five minutes in the sermon and you're going to realize that, you're going to know that. So I just want to mention that, send the, setting the expectations um, the proper expectations, right? Well, I just want to thank my Lord Jesus Christ, elders and ministry staff for this opportunity I've been given to share God's word with you this morning. During this missions month, we've been reflecting on the mission of God and how to be reconnected with a missionary God, a God that has one single and unique mission since the beginning. The first week, we explored a biblical and theological foundation for that mission, and during the second and third week, we reflected on the connection of the local and global church with that mission and its different realities. In all our reflections, God is the epicenter and the one who orchestrates that mission, mission that takes his ultimate revelation in the person of Jesus. This morning, as we close this Missions Month series, we'll be reflecting on the relevance, or if I might say it, the fundamental impact of prayer and its connection with God and his mission. When I look back over this past year and the life of our community here at Calvary, I can see how prayer has been one of those areas that I've seen us growing in the most as a community. I'm not trying to say that we were not a church that didn't pray. What I'm saying is that we are, we're growing in this area because we came to understand how foundational prayer it is for the longevity of our community. Some areas where I've seen the impact of prayer in our congregation are the continuous growth and responses to new ministry opportunities, such as the ECC, PATS, Celebrate Recovery, also that we can continue being a missionary sending church and that we can continue being a church here in Oak Park after more than 100 years. As we pray and ask the Lord of the mission to lead us where he is already working, we can see that he is also answering by providing us with ministry platforms and individuals leading those ministries. I could keep on mentioning many other areas, but I've seen the impact of prayer, and, may, and maybe you have your own testimonies of how God responded to your prayers this past year. However, I will say that when it comes to prayer, it needs to be observed as a lifestyle, something that should be foundational in our lives and that we all are called to cultivate. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18, we reminded that prayer is an ongoing, present reality that keeps us connected with the Lord of the mission and his will for our lives. The Bible has recorded many beautiful prayers in its pages. Prayers of supplication, thanksgiving, celebration, adoration, confession, and divine intervention. 
But there is no prayer like the one Jesus prayed in John 17 because of the moment and the time when he prayed. In our current reality, it seems that prayer becomes a challenge for us, I think because it forces us to stop and engage with God in a dialogue, and it creates some tension. Mostly because of our busy lives, and then prayer is relegated to a moment in our, on our days. This morning, we'll explore prayer by looking at Jesus' prayer in John 17, and we'll focus specifically on the first five verses that were read to us this morning, and also what the Lord wants to communicate to us. As we do that, I want to invite you to pray with me. Father, we come before you with gratitude for what you've done. Thank you that you are a faithful God, an awesome God. Lord, I pray that this morning as we, as we navigate your word, Lord, that you will give me clarity of mind, that I will speak the truth, nothing but the truth, Lord, for your glory. I pray that this word, in some form or another, will find a place in my brothers and sisters' hearts this morning, Lord. We gather this morning here to honor you and to glorify you, Lord. Nothing else. I ask that your presence will fill this place, Lord. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Let me just provide you with a little bit of context before we, we navigate the text. The prayer recorded in John 17 is the longest prayer of Jesus included in the scripture. This prayer comes in the midst of a turmoil that is about to take place. Judas will betray Jesus and Peter will deny him. And the disciples will be scattered just as he foretells them in John 16. Christ is about to face his arrest, trial, and crucifixion. Jesus' prayer in this chapter is deeply connected with the themes and language of his teaching in the Gospel of John until this point. Throughout chapters 13 to 16, John describes Jesus as foreshadowing Jesus foreshadowing his imminent return to the Father, excuse me, through the path of death and suffering, when he says that the time has come for the Son of God to be glorified. Jesus continues modeling his obedience to the Father, even at the expense of his life and imminent death in the cross. As he moves forward to face his destiny, he is keeping in mind his resurrection and return home with the cross before him. The level of intimacy that Jesus demonstrated to his disciples during the Last Supper, when he washed their feet, becomes not also evident as he elevates his prayer to the Father, a prayer that he wants his disciples to overhear. In other words, he is intending for his disciples to listen carefully to his words as he ends his early mission and the disciples begin theirs. And today we have the privilege to listen to that prayer again. As we are introduced to this prayer, we read in the last passages of John 16 in verse 32, a powerful declaration. Jesus says, Behold, the hour is coming, indeed, it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and I will leave, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in you and me you might have peace. In the world you might have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. This powerful declaration takes place right after Jesus acknowledges that the disciples believe early in John 16, and that the faith they're claiming to have now it will be soon tested. Jesus declares that they will be scattered, seeking their own safety, and that, the, and that Jesus will be left alone, that he will be arrested, humiliated, beaten, spit on, and crucified. 
by the world's standards of his time, he will be put in shame, defeated in the crucifixion with the entire world as a witness. All this was new to Jesus. It was part of God's plan since the beginning. But he wanted his disciples to have a clear understanding that the world, this world, is a place of many trials, challenges, and difficulties. And that in the midst of that reality, he is victorious. And that they can have assurance that they will experience peace because of what he has done. That they can rest in his victory. And it is with this profound declaration of victory in John 16.33 that Jesus then elevates his powerful prayer to the Father. He could have just passively waited for what's coming, but instead, he turns actively and intentionally to the person that will continue to walk with him on his journey during the last days of his life on earth into the end, and that is the Father. As he witnessed the end of a life of complete dedication to the mission of God, Jesus turns to God once again and starts a dialogue to connect with his Father, the Lord of the mission. He never disconnected himself from the Father, and this time was not the exception. He invited us this morning to listen to this dialogue where he talks about the end of his task on earth, and he prays with all his heart for his current disciples and future disciples. He prayed for us. This prayer is a window into Jesus' heart during the last days he spent on this earth. As Jesus connected with a lot of the mission through his prayer, I want us to reflect around two questions this morning. What is that we need to be reminded of through this prayer as we join and connect with the Lord of the mission? And what is Jesus modeling to us in John 17? As we engage with the Lord of his mission, there are three things that we are to be reminded today. First thing is that we need to be reminded through this prayer that the Lord of the mission is our Father. Follow with the last words of his message after the meal. Jesus turned all his attention to the Father in prayer. I believe that in the same way we get to understand things from a person for the way they behave, respond, or react, more or less, we can also understand all these certain things from the way they pray. In his deep, deep dialogue with the Father, Jesus started his prayer acknowledging the level of intimacy and connection he had with the person that he was praying to, the Father. The word Father appears over 100 times through the gospel and about six times in chapter 17. And he wants his disciples to know that they've been given full access to the Lord of the mission, not only as a Lord, but as a Father. And that that access is without any restrictions at any time. The concept of God as a Father is something that my dear Muslim friends back in the Middle East didn't quite understand. Every time we talked about it, it was really hard for them to understand. In fact, in the Muslim tradition, there are 99 names for God. Some of those names are... Al-Rahman, Al-Rahim, Al-Qudus, Al-Muhayyim, Al-Salem, Al-Malik. The most merciful, the king, the most holy, the ultimate provider of peace, the guardian of faith, the protector, the almighty, the self-sufficient. And maybe we can even relate with some of those names. Also, the Quran teaches that Allah is almighty and most holy, but not, does not mention Allah in the same context of relationship as a father that we do in Christianity. In contrast, with, in contrast with his prayer, Jesus not only refers to God as a father, but he goes further and he says that he is a holy father and he is a righteous father. Early on my own personal journey as a Christian and listening to someone praying or referring to God as a father was extremely difficult. It was hard to relate to that declaration. In my mind, I understood, I understood the word and the connection being made. However, it was not a reality in my own life. I was not ready to confess God as a father. It just didn't make sense 
The separation between my parents early in my childhood, specifically the absence of my father, was something that prevented me from reaching out to the Lord as my father. And that was because of the lack of relationship I have with my early father. Abandonment was the only word that described or defined what a father was for me. Now, having been in access to God, not only as a Lord that he is, but also as a good father, has not only helped me to seek to be a good dad, not a perfect dad, but a good dad, to my children, but also has given me a better understanding in the way that I interact with my dad after all those years without any communication. I got to feel to already find fatherhood through what I, I learned and experienced from my heavenly father. He was being my model as a father, and because of that, I am able now to love and relate to my early dad today. As we respond or embark with God in his mission, we're reminded this morning throughout this prayer that we've been given access and complete freedom to come as we are knowing that our Father will listen to us and will never turn his back on us nor abandon us. In Hebrews 4, 16, we read that with complete freedom and confidence, we can come close to the throne of grace where we will receive the mercy and the grace that we need during the most difficult times of our lives. That is what Jesus is modeling for us in prayer, in, prayer, in these prayers. Excuse me. If God is our Father, then that makes us his beloved son and daughters. This is the father that would do anything and move anything because of his deep, unchangeable, eternal, perfect, abundant, never-failing love for us. Jesus wants to remind us that God is our father as we reconnect with him and his mission. And as a father, he wants to be known and experienced. That is the relationship that we've been welcomed into, a relationship and not a mere transaction. Number two, we're reminded that it's about God's glory. The mission is about God and his glory too. Once Jesus addresses the Father appealing to his deep relationship with him, he engages into a dialogue using heavy, heavenly language. When Jesus introduced the concept of glory, that's what's happening. Now, let me describe it to you like this. Um, it is as you were part of a meal where you're sharing a table at a restaurant with Albert Einstein, Stephen Hawking, and at some point, later on, Steve Jobs and Bill Gates show up, right? They want to be invited. And during the meal, they start discussing why, in a black hole, the region of a space-time exhibiting gravitational acceleration is so strong that light cannot escape it. That's the topic of discussion on the table. Now, you're sitting on the table, and you want to follow up, and you're trying to participate and say something is smart, but you can't. I mean, it's just... It's too, yeah, it's complicated. <laughs> now, because Steve Jobs and Bill Gates are there, and they're not quite following, which is a relief to me, right, if I'm still on the table, <laughs> they switch into a topic of technology, you know. But you can still follow. I can still follow them. It's too hard. Now, as a Costa Rican, that's how I feel sometimes in our staff meetings when our charming Pastor Gerald... Uh, <laughs> shares his weekly quote from one of the, you know, uh, church fathers to the point that he has to explain it to everyone at the end. So that's, that's how I feel. Um, that's how the, this dialogue begins. As Jesus prays for himself, he has one request, one thing in mind. From the beginning to the end, he's thinking about being glorified by the Father and to glorify God. There is a unique connection between, between Jesus' request to be glorified and the Father being glorified or receiving glory. Jesus is asking the Father, what Jesus is asking the Father is to be glorified by him. 
His declaration is deeply connected to the first verse in chapter 17 when he says that the hour has come in reference to the cross and the glory that will be displayed in Golgotha. It is through a life of full dependence and obedience to the Father and his mission that Jesus will glorify God. For the glory of the Father to be fully expressed, it was required not only Jesus' full submission and obedience, but listen to this, the cross and Jesus in it were also required. Those were the necessary elements for that glory to be fully displayed. For that glory to be shown, Jesus' surrendered life and imminent suffering were also needed. Ending well here for Jesus meant for God to be glorified, and it is in his obedience that the Father will be exalted. In connection with the glory described in verse 1, he now declares in verse 2 that is through the dynamic act of glory between Jesus and the Father that his authority will be exercised. He says in verse 2, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. God the Father, right before the creation of this world, chose a group of people to be recipients of his salvation for a reason that he only understands, and it is a mystery. You and I were given to Jesus not only as recipients for his love, forgiveness, restoration, and salvation, we were also given to Jesus as presence, and that is a privilege. The only way for Jesus to exercise his authority to give us eternal life was by dying on the cross. In those days, the cross was not only an instrument of death, but shame, but in Jesus, he became the instrument by which he received glory by exercising his authority and giving us eternal life. Someone describes that moment in the cross like this. Hanging on the cross and seemingly helpless, he kept giving life and receiving glory. In the cross, only Jesus was able to turn an instrument of shame and death into something that produced life and gave glory to the Father. All the past year, I've been reflecting on what does it mean to give glory to God. In fact, it is something that I pray constantly. God, help me to give you glory with my life. has been my prayer. A few weeks ago, God reminded me of this, something that I've been praying and talking about. And I think we use this, you know, idea of give glory to God constantly. And God reminded me that sometimes my own humanity comes across that glory. And for his glory to be displayed, I need to keep myself in a place of humility and obedience. The glory of God, a commentator noted, is the group of characteristics and attributes that make him God the most extraordinary, awesome being on the planet. Later he adds, his glory makes him beautiful and attractive to everyone who has eyes to see him. God manifests and receives his glory through all his creation and his sovereign power. But the display of glory, but the display of God's fullness and sufficiency is displayed in the cross. Only God was able to come up with such an amazing plan of restoration and redemption for us. We are reminded through prayer that we are called to live a life of full dependence, humility, and obedience. And this is through our sufferings and struggles in this world. We were created to give glory to God and to become conduits of his glory when we join him on his mission. We can only do this in a posture of humility and obedience. Number three, we're reminded through this prayer that what life should mean for us believers. The purpose of everything that Jesus was willing to face is revealed in the second part of the verse, verse 2, when he says that the full expression of his authority over the ones that the Father gave him is to give them eternal life. He not only declares that, but he goes further and defines what life should mean for us in verse 3 when he says, and this is eternal life, 
that they know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. He wants his disciples and the church of the future, us, to understand what eternal life is. He wants to remind us that as we join God in his mission, we need to have a clear understanding. If we don't, if we don't understand what life is about, as he describes it, the world will, that the world will create his own definition or versions of this life. This broken world will be against us until he fully restores it. Understanding that it is an important part of our identity as believers, not only who we are and what God says that we are, but how should our lives look as we navigate this world. He says that this is eternal life, is to know God and to know the one whom God sent, nothing else. What Jesus offers us is better than what this world has to offer. It is a life of intimacy and fellowship with the Lord, where we get to see the purpose of what our life should be about. Or in words of Augustine, a life with God who created us for himself so that our soul is restless unless it finds its rest in him. The only place where all our needs are going to be met and we will be satisfied and see fruit in our lives is by abiding in him. The life that we've been called to live is to have a personal and intimate relationship with the Father and the Son. The verb to know in this passage comes from a Greek term that it means to understand and represents one that I merely perceive or to acknowledge someone. It is more than an exchange of intellectual ideas, but implies affection and commitment. Eternal life is not only the idea of living forever, but describes an abundant life where all our needs, all our needs are met and we are sustained out of our relationship with the Father and the Son. Jesus wanted to remind us that we can only access and enjoy this life when we fulfill the purpose for, we, we, for which we were created, glorify God and delight in Him. Eternal life is to experience personal and constant relationship with the Father and the Son. It's not, the, it's not alone an, an endless life, and rather to experience the same relationship that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have. The relationship they had since eternity was not an end on itself. It was meant for us to enjoy it and to have access to Jesus Christ. As we connect through prayer with the Lord of the mission, we're reminded that what life is, is truly about and that Jesus is the only way to access it. In John 14.6, 14, he says, I am the way, I am the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's not the only that he gives life, but that he is life. There is no life if he is not the one giving it. A life without Christ is to be disconnected from God and his mission. And finally, in verse 5, the son asked the father to fulfill his purpose in him, even at the cost of his own life. Jesus understood his purpose. He knew what his life on earth was about. And in a loving and passionate response to the father, he offered his own life, not as I will, but as you will, Jesus says. By faithfully committing himself to the fulfillment of the mission, Jesus had demonstrated the level of importance the Father was in his life. Jesus had his priorities in place. He knew that soon he was to be arrested, beaten, crucified, humiliated. But he had resolved to carry on with his mission. Fulfill your will at the expense of my own life is what Jesus was saying. Would it be possible for us to pray something like that? Would it be possible for us to say your will and not mine? 
and declare that it is well with our souls. Joining the Lord of the mission and his purpose for our lives does not exempt us from suffering. There is no mission without purpose, and there is no purpose without hardships and struggles. In the same way that Jesus was sent into this world, you and I were sent with a purpose into the world that we're in today. It's not a coincidence. And therefore, we cannot begin his mission without expecting challenges, suffering, and struggles, and yet fullness of life at the same time. Jesus closes this prayer for himself by asking the Father for the glory that he had with him since the beginning to be restored. This didn't mean that he will somehow renounce to the incarnation, or in other words, that he will be deincarnated in order to access that glory again. When the Word became flesh, it was in a temporary and rather a permanent state. Carson described Jesus' request about being restated with his glory like this. When he is glorified, he does not leave his body behind in a grave, but rises with a transformed, glorified body. If this was true for Jesus, what does it mean for us? While on earth, as a fully man, Jesus concealed the brightness of his glory with the veil of his humanity. In Matthew 17, we're reminded how Jesus took Peter, James, and John to go to the mountain. And he was transfigured, and his glory was displayed. That is the glory that he renounced to be one of us. He could have come as a king and ruler that he is. But instead, out of an act of love, he gave that up, willingly renouncing all the privilege that he had so that you and I can be here today. The will of his father and the completion of his work were more important than his own life. Earlier I mentioned that prayer is a dialogue and that in John 17, Jesus and the Father engage in this very heavy, heavenly dialogue. In Philippians 2, 5 through 11, I think Paul gave us an idea in what could have been the response of the Father to the Son to his prayer. He says, and I love this passage, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who thought he was in the form of God, did not count equally with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. But the passage doesn't end there, doesn't it? And he says, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And this is when you say amen. amen. Because if he wasn't for this, none of us wouldn't be here today here. If he wasn't for that power, if he wasn't for his salvation, if he wasn't that he willingly went to that cross, none of this wouldn't take place. I think sometimes we've been free for such a long time that we forget what does it mean to be in chains. Let's not forget that and let's not take that for granted. That's what we come here to do, um, to glorify the one God who made this possible for you and me. The life that you have, the life that I have, is because God somehow chose for that to be. 
In closing, I want to mention just a few practical things to remember as we approach a lot of the mission. First thing that I want to mention is that our prayer should be influenced by the level of intimacy that we have with the Father. Jesus modeled a high level of intimacy with the Father. It was something that he enjoyed doing in his prayer life. When we pray to a sovereign God, and if you believe that, when we pray to a sovereign God that has control and dominion, somehow that should give us, just should give us space to experience communion with him just as Jesus did. Number two, a life of intimacy with the Father should produce not only reverence, but also humility, gratitude, and thanksgiving. Prayer is deeply connected to the proclamation of the word. It glorifies God and produces life in and through us through the work of the Spirit. This is how Spurgeon defined it. Every growth of a spiritual life from the first tender shoot until now has been the work of the Holy Spirit. The only way to more life is the Holy Spirit. You will not even know that you want more unless he works in you to desire it. The Spirit of God must come and make the letter alive, transfer it into your heart, set it on fire, and make it burn within you. Or else its divine force and majesty will be hidden from your eyes. Prayer, prayer is the creation of the Holy Spirit. We cannot do without prayer, and we cannot pray without the Holy Spirit. Finally, you are here to make Jesus Christ known in a park, something that we say every week. We're here to make Jesus Christ known in a park and around the world. If this is something that we genuinely desire and believe, let us incorporate it into our prayer life. Let's express it and leave it out. As we close in prayer, I want to invite you to think about what you've been given. Resources, knowledge, experience, gifts, influence, the neighborhood that you live in, or anything that comes to mind. And I want to ask you to present it before the Lord and ask him to use you and everything that he has given you for his glory and his mission. Many years ago, I responded to a prayer, similar prayer, and, you know, I used God to use my life. I didn't know that this would be my life, but this is where God decided. Um, what I know is that God answers his prayers. I don't know how or when he will answer, but he, if you honestly ask the Father to use you, he will answer Next time we declare that we are here to make Jesus Christ known in Oak Park and around the world, ask the Lord to reveal to you what is his purpose for you in his mission and the vision for this church. If you're new to Calvary or visiting for the first time, I want to let you know that there is a reason and a purpose for you to be here. And I also want to mention that we're not claiming to be the perfect church, but that we are praying to a sovereign, almighty, and self-sufficient Lord of the mission to guide us through the sanctification process to be the church that he wants us to be until he comes back, and he will come back. Can we pray by asking the Lord in a posture of humility to lead us to abandon our own personal claims and the need to control that we all have? Also, the desire to rule our own lives and to rest in his sovereignty and his everlasting love. Can we do that in humility and respond with joy and thanksgiving to his call?
Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can call you. You can say Abba, Father. We praise you because we can relate to you as a father. We ask you that you will help us to be mindful that we were created as an expression of your love and that our lives have purpose for your kingdom and your glory. We ask you that you will keep us humble and obedient in the process. We surrender everything we are and everything you have given us to be used for your mission today. Would you please give us a deep, intense, and passionate desire to love you more than anything else and that your love will be evident to everyone in our workplaces, schools, neighborhoods, families, and beyond. Use our lives for your glory. Make Jesus the center of our lives.